Hi everyone, welcome back to the channel. Today I'm joined by Remsen Noir. Remsen is a high raw vegan nutritionist and fitness coach and he's been doing this for quite a while now, over a decade coaching. And I've got to be careful with my words here, especially on YouTube, but he's been helping people, let's say, reverse chronic diseases and illnesses and also help them get in shape with fitness coaching and things like that. And also, if you've seen him online, He's got a massive Instagram following. He's got an incredible physique, especially on this diet and lifestyle. So that's why I'm delighted to have Remsen on today. And if you wouldn't mind, Remsen, just a quick intro for the people, how you got started on this journey, uh, coaching people and your fitness and health journey. That'd be great. Just like a little intro of your timeline. Yeah, so... Um... I really started with my journey in coaching as a personal trainer at 18 years old. Um, and then throughout the years, I, I added on other certifications, corrective exercise, performance enhancement, strength and conditioning, uh, sports nutrition, uh, plant-based nutrition. And then from there, got into uh, chronic illness reversal, and things of this nature, right? Um, so yeah, quite quite the journey. People mostly know me for the nutrition aspect now, um, just because a lot of what I focus on is uh, chronic illness reversal. Because uh, at least here in the states, uh, we have a real problem when it comes to metabolic disorders and chronic illness, right? Um, and early on, and the reason why I really put an emphasis in nutrition is because. Um, Starting as a personal trainer in New York City, and then for a while I worked in Manhattan in a pretty, I would say, prestigious or high-income uh, community in Soho, you know, working out of Equinox, right? So you're working with people who are like news anchors and authors, celebrities, models, that kind of thing. But when I moved to Georgia, the population was very different, right? It was more of like a working class, kind of blue-collar population. Yeah. And this is where, you know, you really start to see the issues people are really dealing with and fitness is just not enough. It's an important aspect. But um, when I was 18 years old, you know, people mostly was like, they just wanted to lose some weight. You know, maybe they want their abs mm -hmm. to show. They wanted to get in shape, put on some muscle. Now it's, hey, I want to reverse my high blood pressure. My cholesterol is really high. I'm diabetic. Um, I have gout, right? all types of really serious issues. And you can't train your way out of these things. Um, and so you run into that enough and you see the crazy levels of obesity and you can't train your way out of obesity. This is the thing, you can't do it. If you have a person where they have to lose 100 pounds, 150 pounds or so, they can't just exercise their way out. And they can't just calorie cut their way out either. That doesn't work for most people. It works for some people, but most people it doesn't, right? Like maybe 5% of the pop population may be able to actually do that where the whole calorie cutting thing works for them to get them to their goal weight. Um, but the issue is not overeating, it's food poisoning, yeah. right? Obesity is largely caused by, f uh, oh, by food poisoning. You actually can't... Um, take on a calorie deficit that would cause you to be 100, 100 pounds overweight. It doesn't really work that way. It doesn't happen because of a 
of a calorie surplus, I should say, right? You don't overeat your way into that. It's, just, you, it's food poisoning. That's how you get into that. Uh, where your foods are uh, metabolic disruptors, endocrine disruptors. Basically, these are foods that destroy your hormonal balance. And NASA causes you to gain, gain the weight. It's not a calorie thing, right? Um, but a lot of this I didn't know. And I went, you know, originally when I went vegan, I went plant-based. I did it for ethical reasons, right? Because I saw what happens to animals and animal agriculture. And it was so repulsive to me. Um, I was just like, I'm done. And I stopped cold turkey. And it wasn't what I saw, it was what I heard, right? So even when I looked away because of how gruesome it was, the, the sound of just animals screaming in terror, it was one of the worst sounds you've ever heard in yeah, your entire sure. life, right? Um, and the sound, I mean, the sound stuck in my head for weeks. It was the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And that was enough from there. But the thing is that now if you are a fitness coach, you're working with people and you take on this plant-based uh, mindset and lifestyle, you can't continue to advise people to eat the things that you were eating prior. So now if I'm going to advise people into eating this to this totally different way, well, I have to get educated on doing that. I got to really know what I'm talking about. Right. And so that's where I really got into uh, the education around plant-based nutrition. Yeah. And how many years ago was that? Um, when you made that switch to vegan? Oh, man, let's see. So basically, it's been 10 years. I made the switch 10 years yeah. ago. Um, and then I pursued two years of education through courses, certifications, continuing education, uh, and that kind of thing. And then actually started coaching in, in writing plant-based diet plans and things like that two years afterwards. So probably like eight years ago, I want to say. Yeah. And then learning more about chronic illness reversal since then, right? And it's a lot of continuing education involved in that, a lot of independent study involved in that, right? You can't really get that kind of thing through a conventional um, education, yeah. right? Um, just because it culturally, as far as our health system, it's not really geared towards chronic illness reversal. It's more about like treatment, right? Treatment and management. Right. How to manage your diabetes, how to control your blood sugar. Right. This kind of thing It's not really ever about improving insulin sensitivity and alkalizing your body and restoring your gut microbiome. That kind of thing It's not really what the focus is. People are talking about that now. And that's fairly, it's like a fairly new development now where people are really talking about this. Right. Um, and so that's where. Um, I guess that's where my stuff and several other people would really st stand out, right? Talking about chronic illness reversal, the gut microbiome and, and, and all of this type of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think, like you say, it becomes, I think people, especially later on in life, they begin to realize just how important longevity is as opposed to, you know, with fitness, like you say, training. A lot of people, maybe they want the abs earlier on in life. They want things like that. But then later on, they realize just how precious their health is. And especially when, unfortunately, they have these chronic illnesses, because then it really hits home. Um, so in terms of chronic illnesses, what would you say are like the most common you encounter like on your day-to-day -day work? Diabetes. Yeah, diabetes. It's probably the most common one. Um, but people usually what they'll do is they'll reach out to me about blood pressure, hypertension. Mm -hmm. uh, hypertension, though, it's not really a chronic illness. It's an indication of chronic illness. Right. Um, 
a lot of the times people who have high blood pressure are very insulin resistant or diabetic. Mm -hmm. Right. Or if you have kidney disease or you're in the early stages of kidney disease, one of the indications of that is high blood pressure. Yeah. And right. So that's, the, that's, that's yeah, the most common. Yeah. And a lot of people they'll hear like diabetes and they'll say, Oh, my doctors told me not to eat fruit or to monitor my fruit intake. And some of my audience, they know very well about like the benefits of a high raw diet and that, but there'll be plenty of new people listening to this. So what would you say to them when they get that advice from their doctor? Like, Oh, limit your fruit. What? Yeah. How do you feel about fruit and diabetes and that link? Yeah, so it's it's generally not helpful to to make the, bla the the blanket claim limit your fruit intake. Like when you say limit, well, what exact what does that mean exactly? Right? Is that three pounds a day? Is it six? Right? Is it you should limit your total carb intake to two hundred grams per day? Three hundred? Does it depend on your body measurements? Give me some numbers. Right? So. When I advise people on diet, I talk about numbers and food choice a lot. Right? So there's a lot of math that goes into it. Um, there really isn't any scientific evidence whatsoever that actually demonstrates that fruit has a negative impact on diabetics or that it makes you insulin resistant or uh, contributes to insulin resistance. There's no scientific data for that whatsoever. Now, the interesting thing, too, is that what people will say, and you'll hear people, especially like a keto community or carnivore community people, and they'll say, you know, fructose, right? And what they'll do is they'll use the words fructose and fruit interchangeably, yeah. right? It's like a bait and switch. And this is like a, this is a media literacy thing because it's like, well, high fructose corn syrup comes from corn. It doesn't come from fruit. So if you do a YouTube video and you're talking about the dangers of fructose, but this, the, the, the studies that you're citing are about high fructose corn syrup, well, why are you talking about fruit? Yeah. Right? And especially if you are, you know, an educated person in nutrition or the medical field, surely you should understand the difference between these two things. It's kind of negligent to not be able to distinguish the difference, right? Um, so this is kind of like, a, you know, the, the media literacy, understanding, you know, propaganda kind of thing that people engage in. Right. So we have to talk about the numbers and we have to talk about human adaptation. Right. So when it comes to fruit, I think that there's an adequate amount that you should eat and you probably don't need to eat above a certain amount either. Right. So it depends on how you structure your diet. So it would be a good idea to know, like, well, when are you eating? How are you structuring your meals? Um, what is the total amount of carbs versus fats versus proteins and all of that? You really can't look at dietary sugar or carbs in a vacuum by themselves because the other macros have a codependent relationship with each other. Nothing works in a vacuum, yeah. right? Um so, for example, if you eat a lot of, let's say you eat fruit in your diet, but you also are eating, let's say, uh, 120 grams of fat and let's say, I don't know, 30% of it coming from saturated fat, that would have a significant impact on how insulin resistant or insulin sensitive you become, right? So, we know that um, saturated fat... Um, 
is a, a, a mitochondrial disruptor, right? So the mitochondria being the energy factories of your cells, um, if that becomes disrupted or, you know, diminished as far as its efficiency, this is how you become insulin resistant, right? So now saturated fat in and of itself doesn't cause this, but it's a thing of the more of it you consume, the more of a negative effect it has. And the reason for that is because the human body doesn't naturally prioritize burning fat for energy. It's a secondary or auxiliary form of energy, right? It's, it's a type of energy that your body switches over to prioritizing for energy in the absence of food or carbohydrates. But in the presence of consuming carbohydrates, your body does not burn fat to any significant degree because human beings are predisposed to using carbs and glucose for energy as a primary source of energy, right? We're not carnivores. Um, human beings are not physiologically carnivores. You can be behaviorally omnivorous. You can even be behaviorally carnivorous, uh, carnivorous, but you're not biologically so. You're not physiologically so, mm -hmm. right? And this is the reason why we have rampant diabetes and things like that in the first place, right? But now, if you were to significantly decrease the amount of dietary fat you consume, like, like well, let's say your dietary fat intake is anywhere between... 30 grams and 65 grams of fat per day, well, then that gives you room to significantly increase the amount of carbohydrates you consume. Now, the interesting thing is if you're diabetic, if you eat like this over a prolonged period of time, you establish a trend. The goal is not to avoid blood sugar spikes. The goal is to have your blood sugar on average trend downward towards a healthy level. So when I work with diabetics... Day by day, week by week, their blood sugar trends downward, right? And their blood sugar returns to baseline much faster than it did previously. Yeah. And the longer that trend goes, eventually that trend levels off at a non-diabetic rate. Right? So it comes down and then it levels out and then boom, you have a, you have a well-functioning metabolism. Yeah. That makes complete. Right? So it's about establishing the trend. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That really resonates, especially because I've heard other guests in the past talk about diabetes actually being like a fat disease. And that makes complete sense. Like you say, the body is not predisposed or it doesn't prefer breaking down fats. It's like you say, a, a slow process. And in terms of like people might say, so I'm just playing devil's advocate here. They might say, well, I see loads of carnivores doing really well or people on the keto diet doing really well. They look really, you know, muscular and fit and athletic. What, what do you think about the keto diet in terms of the health ramifications long-term? And why do you think some people might see like short-term benefits on the keto diet or carnivore diet? Or... Yeah. Um, so this is the thing, right? the the merit of a thing should not be based on the short-term benefits of it right i give you an example if you i mean in terms of weight loss you can do cocaine and lose weight right um you can do crack meth you can lose weight yeah. you can do steroids and gain a ton of muscle mass and get lean. You can do all types of hormones, supplementation, and all that. 
and develop a phenomenal physique and get really strong and really lean and muscular, right? And taking performance enhancement drugs and all that kind of stuff. How sustainable is it though? Right? So if you see a trend of, you know, these pro level bodybuilders that were glorified um, in our day and we had posters of them all over our wall and then they're dying, you know, in their mid forties and fifties from heart attacks, or you look at them now and they look, you know, kind of shriveled up and just unrecognizable. Yeah. Right. And they had to come off the gear and, and go through all types of other treatments because their, their, their hormones were destroyed by taking so much testosterone and gear throughout the years. Right. So they have, you know, like, uh, atrophy of the gonads and all of this type of stuff because their body no longer has the ability to produce uh the hormones anymore mm -hmm. right um so that's the thing right what nothing is free so if you are sacrificing something for short-term games now what is the price later on down the line nothing's free right um so you can do something and i mean even fasting is the same thing Right. You can do a fast for seven days, 14 days. You can do a fast for 21 days, but there's diminishing returns. The longer you do it, there's a price to pay. You can lose a lot of weight, not eating at all. As a matter of fact, you know, the most effective way to, to lose weight is just water fasting, just not eating at all. Right. Yeah. But what kind of vitamin or mineral or amino acid deficiencies are you developing in the process of doing that? Right. What is the what is the cost? So that's the thing you have to consider too, because you do need uh, certain amino acids, and where does those where do those amino acids come from when they're needed? Right, if you're not getting it from food, your body has to get it from somewhere. Right, so this is what I mean about you know the longer you do something, there's diminishing returns. So when you make a decision based on the merits of something, you want to look at long term results. And we can see that through population data. We can look, we can see that through logistics, right? We know that human beings, first of all, the human population is too large for human beings to be carnivorous. Not to mention carnivores do not have, do not live very long, right? So if your goal is, hey, I want to eat a carnivore diet to, you know, maximize longevity. Well, you understand those two things are in competition with each other. Right. So you, you can't really do both at the same time. It's not how that works. It, you know, you can't have billions of carnivores in existence. You can't do it. And the reason why is because if you did, the population would just be like a like a plague on the environment. Right. Just logistically, it's just not it's just not sustainable. You can't have a population that large to just be eating all of the other mammals in the environment that way. It'll throw off the whole ecosystem. You literally act as a pandemic if you do that, mm. right? Um, you'll, that'll cause mass species extinction and all types of stuff like that. It's just logistically, it's a ridiculous thing to propose for our population. It's just not feasible, right, logistically. Um, but a lot of that is, you know, in service of animal agriculture, right? It's economically based. It's not, there's no scientific standard for it, right? Um, but, you know, if you look at, well, if we, we thrive best on having an animal-based diet, then what was the point of the animal, what was the point of the plant-based agricultural system in the first place? 
why did human beings go through all the trouble of cultivating the land and growing crops and all of this type of stuff if you thrive so well on just eating animal products anyway? Right? It doesn't make sense. Human beings invent things out of necessity. You're not going to invent something in order to abandon the thing that previously made your life better. It's not really how that works. Right? Uh, so that's, you know, that's my take on that. But when I look at the population data and I see, hey, the, the people who live the longest and typically are in the best health are the people who have a mostly plant-based diet. And your diet doesn't even necessarily need to be 100% plant-based. Being 100% plant-based is an ethical position, right? So I wouldn't tell somebody like, hey, if you eat some fish, it's going to give you heart disease. I wouldn't make a claim like that, right? My claim is, well, you don't need to eat fish because you got all of these different plants and fruits and things like that to get all the nutrients you need. So you don't need to contribute to the economic, uh, I mean, the, the ecological destruction that we engage in, you know, on a daily basis if we don't need to. Right? We just don't live in that world where we can afford to do that anymore. We're already overfishing and, and all of that type of stuff as it is. Our population is just too high to continue to do things the way we were before. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think you touched on a lot of great points there, but just something you touched on near the start when you said carnivores don't live as long. The way I interpret that is as in the carnivorous animals, like, you know, your tine, uh, tigers, your mm -hmm. lions. Is that what you were referring to? Uh, yeah, in nature. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because their bodies are so acidic. Yeah, their population is not that high and they exactly. don't live that long. Yeah. Because yeah. I think, I can't remember who said it. I think it might have been Dr. Bruce Lipton, but there was someone who said all of the carnivores and the predators, they're slowly dying out in our world now as we're seeing, like, their population, like yeah. you said, their populations are decreasing. But, there was something I wanted to touch on for me personally, and there's a lot, especially in the male population, they want to build muscle, they want maybe high testosterone levels, and yeah, just feeling like they're working towards meaningful goals. So a lot of people experience low testosterone, and I know you touched on it in a previous live video, but I think it's really valuable to share your insights. So what would you say are like, maybe the top three most common causes of low testosterone that you see? Uh, so low testosterone usually comes from a poor metabolism, right? A metabolic disorder. So it's actually, it actually in large part comes from dehydration, right? Um, insulin resistance, lipotoxicity. These are the primary drivers. So, um, and there is plenty of scientific data that shows just simply hydrating your body to a higher degree uh, will raise your testosterone, right? Just being more hydrated. Now, when I talk about hydration, I'm not talking about drinking more water because drinking more water is actually not how you hydrate yeah. your body, right? You know, you can drink a ton of water and really all what happens is it just goes in your mouth and comes right out the other end, right? If you want to stay hydrated, you need to increase the amount of electrolytes stored in your body. So that's going to be your calcium, your potassium, your magnesium, right? So now one thing that's extremely common in our population is low magnesium. 
if you're in a magnesium deficit, magnesium is one of those things that's needed in order to maintain an adequate pH balance, right? This is what helps to alkalize your body, right? When we talk about an alkaline diet, essentially we're talking about a diet that increases the electrolyte balance in your body to help alkalize your body. That's what an alkaline diet is, right? <clears throat> so if, you, if you're eating a lot of animal products, if you're eating a lot of saturated fat, magnesium serves as currency to pay the tab for eating that way, right? So number one, increased saturated fat actually inhibits magnesium absorption in the intestines. This is important to know because this contributes to a magnesium deficiency. And magnesium deficiency doesn't really show up in a blood test because you don't really have much, you're not supposed to have much magnesium in your blood. If you have a lot of magnesium in your blood, that's a, that's a big problem, right? Because that means it's being leached from your muscle tissue and your bones, right? It's supposed to be stored in your muscle tissue and your bones. Same thing with calcium. Calcium is not supposed to be high in your blood either. That's a really bad sign, right? And that is one of the, one of the primary factors in driving atherosclerotic plaque buildup, right? Leading to heart yeah. disease. So if you are, let's say, eating processed sugary foods, your body has to use magnesium because magnesium is one of the things that helps absorb glucose into your cells and convert that glucose or that sugar into ATP inside your cells to use for energy, right? ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is, which is a form of energy that your cells use in order to engage in a respiratory metabolic process, right? So if you have a deficiency in magnesium, well, your body then has to use something else to pick up the tab. A lot of times this is calcium. So what happens is calcium is then leached from your muscle tissue and your bone into your bloodstream in order to correct this imbalance and pay this tab. Right? Um, now, if you increase the amount of potassium and magnesium in your diet, well, then you don't have to expend calcium to alkalize your body, right? The potassium is really important for maintaining an adequate amount of blood plasma. The reason why that's important is because blood plasma is like, a, it's like lanes in a highway. Less blood plasma is a result of dehydration, which leads to a thin, like a thickening or a thinning of the blood, right? Where instead of having four lanes on the highway, you got like two. So now the nutrients that, that is in your blood takes longer to get to your cells. You get like this cellular metabolic congestion, right? Mm -hmm. There's an efficiency in delivery of nutrients. An inefficiency, has to say. But your blood is also responsible for removing metabolites from your cells. And, it, and so if your blood is having a poor, is doing a poor job at delivering nutrients to your cells, it is also doing a poor job of extracting metabolites and waste products from your cells, which then leads to higher levels of oxidative stress, cellular damage, which then leads to chronic inflammation, right? So if you wanted to reduce infl inflammation in your body, if you wanted to reduce the oxidative stress, then you increase the amount of magnesium and potassium-rich foods in your diet, and essentially you get more lanes you get more blood, you get more blood oxygenation, you get, you get faster waste removal from your body, you get an even load balance that protects your kidneys from having to do a whole bunch of excess work as far as decontaminating your blood and your cells. 
if you reduce the amount of oxidative stress and you reduce the amount of inflammation, then what happens, this serves as a green light where your body says, hey, since I don't have to deal with regulating all this inflammation and oxidative stress, we can then use that surplus of energy into building more muscle mass and increasing testosterone production. Stress destroys testosterone levels. Right? So the more stress you get, the more oxidative stress and the more chronic inflammation you incur. This kills your testosterone and it increases estrogen output. And then increased estrogen output leads to excessive body fat gain because estrogen encourages your body to store fat and then fat also produces estrogen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh -huh. Ouroboros of sorts, right? This process, if this process goes on for, let's say, two, three, five years, this is where you get moves, excess back fat, right? A lot of fat storage in the torso, then excess visceral fat, right? Uh, because men, right, you don't really have uh, ovaries or progesterone or things like that, right, to really offset um, your, your, your body fat deposits. So you get the worst of all worlds because then you have to be in a guy with excess fat storage in your legs and hips and arms and chest, and then you get you still have the testosterone from your gonads that encourages visceral fat buildup around the waistline and on top of the organs. And then having excessive levels of inflammation and oxidative stress increases the rate of fat storage around the organs, the midline. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that further leads to insulin resistance because now your organs are getting calcified and, you know, you have this layer of fat over, over the top that inhibits nutrient absorption. Right? So your organs don't function as well as they did before because of all this visceral fat buildup. And then that becomes inflammatory and then that plummets your testosterone even more and all of this type of stuff. And then by the time you're 40, 45 years old or so, you're now in andropause, which is the male version of menopause. Right? You have to eat your way out of that. You don't get out of you don't get out of it any other way. You can't train your way out. And the reason for that is because training actually costs testosterone. Muscle protein synthesis costs testosterone. Testosterone is like a form of currency. And the more you train and the harder you work, the more you spend. You spend more magnesium. You spend more calcium. You spend more testosterone. You spend more serotonin. You spend more dopamine. So your body's burning through all of these nutrients just to sustain what you currently are. Not improvement, just sustenance, just to keep you alive. So this is... This is metabolic and physiological and biological poverty. You cut your calories, you just make it worse. You just put yourself deeper into poverty. It's like a pay cut. So the only way to get out is to eat your way out. And if you're in the gym training every day, you're, you're, you're a guy who's trying to lose weight. One of the worst things you could do is an hour of cardio a day and spend, spend an hour in the gym, gym lifting weights. You're doing too much training volume, and so you're expending too many resources. A stressed body that is chronically inflamed is not going to prioritize building more muscle mass. Building muscle mass is not a priority for the human body. Survival is. Fat storage is a survival mechanism. So your body will actually prioritize breaking down muscle and storing fat. 
it's just easier to do because muscle is very expensive. It's very metabolically expensive. It requires a lot of resources to maintain. Fat does not. So your body is like, hey, I can hold on to this fat much easier than I can hold on to muscle. So the most expensive one, well, that's got to go. And this is actually why most men fail to build muscle. Because if you don't view it through this lens, you're not going to understand why you're not seeing any gains. Yeah. <clears throat> that makes, it makes complete sense. When you break it down like that, very simply, but eloquently, it makes complete sense in my mind. And hopefully it resonates with the audience. But then people might be thinking, okay, it's, it's great. I know, I know all this, but what about solutions? So you said stress is probably the worst factor. How would you recommend like naturally reducing stress? What, what kind of solutions? Yeah. So <clears throat> the reason why I'm, why I'm a big advocate for a high raw vegan diet is because it's an anti-stress diet. So let's talk about, uh, let's say vitamin C. It's an antioxidant. Antioxidant basically means the chemical compound that reduces stress. Your body can't really tell the difference between the stress from a breakup or the stress from like, you know, getting an injury. Can't really stress the stress. Everything goes in the stress bucket and that registers in your brain. Your body has a very uh, primal communication system. It doesn't really understand pain or stress or, or anything like that in like in these emotionally internalized ways that we do. Right. Stress is just stress. It doesn't matter what it is. If you increase the amount of vitamin C in your diet, this would reduce oxidative stress. If you increase the amount of magnesium in your diet, this would reduce the amount of stress. Now, the interesting thing is if you increase vitamin C and magnesium and you're doing that through foods, chances are you're doing that through foods that also will increase your body's serotonin production in your gut. Because a lot of the high magnesium rich foods and high vitamin C rich foods are usually rich in tryptophan. Tryptophan is an amino acid. Um, that is a precursor to serotonin and magnesium is needed in order to synthesize that serotonin. Serotonin is, is an important uh, hormone that is the substrate for mental wellness and emotional wellness, healthy brain chemistry, right? You increase your magnesium intake. That's one of the things that you need to do in order to get you out of chronic anxiety and depression. I have a hundred percent success rate of reversing anxiety and depression. Wow. It's the thing you do early on, right? This is probably one of the easiest things to fix, actually. When you increase the amount of gut serotonin, this, impre this improves the gut microbiome, digestion, and sleep quality. When you increase those things, you get increased levels of serotonin conversion in the brain and melatonin conversion in the brain, which then gives you uh, better sleep quality. So you can get into deep sleep and stay there longer. You can get into REM sleep and stay there longer where you're averaging an hour and a half every night of both. Those things then lead to dopamine sensitivity. Dopamine is what gives you drive ambition, right? It pushes you to want to go and get after things, right? You, you get up in life's face, right? So I like to say, right? And you'll feel this, right? If you feel like, oh, I don't feel like myself. You know, I feel like I, I'm not like quite the man that I used to be. You know, people use these yeah. kind of terms. I feel kind of worn out, tired. That's dopamine resistance. That's low testosterone, right? That's a brain chemistry thing. 
So if you prioritize eating your way out and reducing your training volume, you give your body a chance to rest and recover, and then you'll feel the urge to want to do things. And you know this, right? When you feel better, you're like, you know, I want to go into the gym and train. I want to take on ambitious goals. I want to build a business. I want to network. I want to get out there, right? I want to approach that woman, right? That kind of thing. Yeah, you yeah. want to do things, right? That's one of the green flags. You got to listen to your body. If you don't feel like doing stuff, well, then you got to adequately fuel your body and eat your way out. So when I talk about eating 10 pounds of fruit a day, 16 pounds of fruit a day, people say, oh, that's a lot. As a matter of fact, when I put people on diet plans, it's, it's way more food than they're normally used to eating. Everybody undereats. Everybody. Everybody with metabolic disorders, we all undereat. As a matter of fact, most guys with low testosterone who come to me and I ask them how many times a day you eat, it's typically two. And the more overweight they are, a lot of the times it goes from being two, meal, two meals a day to one meal a day. Wow. The guys who are the most obese undereat the most. Yeah. I've never met a guy who, who, you know, low testosterone, really overweight, and he's got a problem with eating too much. It's really usually not the case. Because your, your metabolism is driven by, uh, hormonally, not thermogenically. In order for your body to even really engage in thermogenesis to any significant degree, there has to be a hormonal substrate to facilitate that process. So people skip over the hormonal part and they go straight to thermogenesis with the calories in, calories out stuff. And that's a trap. Right? And it's evidenced by the fact, hey, if it's just calories in, calories out, well, then everybody, hey, get a, get the, the, the one less Big Mac diet plan. Right? Meal one, Big Mac. Meal two, medium fries, and you're done eating for the day. And watch the, watch, watch the six-pack come through, right? Because it's just calories in, calories out, yeah. right? No. <laughs> it's not how it works at all. So as far as food choices, I'll give you – let's talk numbers, right? We'll talk numbers, sure. and then we'll talk foods. We'll do this, right, as far as solutions are concerned. Well, first of all, let's talk about some numbers. How much should you eat? Your average guy should be eating at least 300 grams of carbs a day. Okay. Just, so just to keep in mind, one kilogram of skeletal muscle mass can hold a minimum of 15 grams of glucose per day. I mean, uh, 15 grams of glucose per kilogram of skeletal muscle right. mass. All right. Your average adult male has like 21, 24 kilograms of muscle mass on them. So essentially you can do like 20 times 15, mm -hmm. right? This will give you like a good starting number. Most people aren't getting anywhere near that. Most people, you know, they're not eating 300 grams of carbs a day. Not even close. No. What people think is high carb, they have no idea what high carb means. Right. I'm talking like three, four hundred grams of carbs a day. Right. At least twelve hundred to fourteen hundred or sixteen hundred calories per day should be coming from carbohydrates. That's a good starting point. As far as dietary fats are concerned, most men do very well at. Let's say 60 grams of fat per day. 
60 is a good amount. If you're, if you're raw, like fully raw, you can go even higher than that. You can go to like 80, right? Um, but your dietary fat, that's where you're going to get your omega-3 essential fatty acids, your omega-6 essential fatty acids. That's where you're going to get a lot of your zinc. That's where you're going to get your selenium, your vitamin E, uh, mainly those things. And then everything else is pretty much just like the carbs. And the reason why the carbohydrates are so important is because of the B vitamins. So as far as getting your thiamine, folate, pyridoxine, all this kind of stuff, right? Basically, your B1 through 9. That's mostly going to be coming from your carbohydrates. Right? As far as protein is concerned, the, the, the general recommendation that I make is one gram of protein per kilogram of lean mass. Usually when I write a high raw vegan diet plan, it's usually like around 1.4, 1.6. That's where you get up to if you're eating enough. You can get enough protein as long as you're eating enough. Now, the interesting thing about protein is your protein consumption has to be proportionate to, your, to the mineral uh, makeup of your overall diet. So if you want to maximize muscle gain, if your protein amount that you consume is not um, parallel to, let's say, zinc and magnesium intake, you're not really going to build any significant muscle. And the reason for that is because the basis of your DNA are minerals. You cannot build new cells without the minerals. You can't form new DNA, DNA without the minerals. So that zinc is really important for testosterone. That magnesium is really important for testosterone, right? So those are like some basic numbers, right? Three to 400, maybe even 500 grams of carbs, depending on your lifestyle. Um, if you're a diabetic, you can even have your, your dietary fats in like as low as 35 grams per day. I wouldn't go below 35. So 35 grams of fat per day. Uh, up to 60 something grams of fat per day basically one kilogram uh, uh, uh one gram of fat per kilogram of lean mass right your macros should be geared towards your lean mass not your overall body weight yeah right um then there's also the fact that muscle is like 76 percent water so whatever you think your skeletal muscle weight is it's a lot lower than that, yeah. <laughs> right? People don't have as much muscle mass on them as yeah, they think. Um, so you, a lot of your lean weight is like water. Your your all overall body weight is mostly water, to be quite honest, right? All of your organs in your body is mostly water. Everything's mostly water. I think the only thing that's the least amount of water is your bones, right? But everything is mostly water, which is why hydration is so important. Even keep in mind... Even if you want to, let's say you wanted to maximize oxygen intake, you wanted to improve blood flow by maximizing and improving oxygen efficiency, you can't do that in a dehydrated state. This is why the hydration is so important. So when I'm talking about eating all of this watermelon and cantaloupe and grapes and all of this kind of stuff, it's because these are very water-rich, hydrating foods. That's why, right? That's why the raw vegan thing is such a big deal, because it's generally a very high water diet. Um... So those are the numbers. Then we get into food choice. If you ask me, how much fruit should you eat a day? It should be somewhere around six to 10 pounds, somewhere around there, right? So let's say um, if you had, if you're doing a high raw vegan diet, you would have, let's say two fruit bowls a day, one smoothie bowl, and then like a cooked meal, right? And it would be like four meals, for example. That would be like a layout. So let's say your first meal is like four pounds of watermelon. Right. And then your second meal is like four pounds of another fruit, let's say bananas. 
or let's say two and a half pounds of mango or let's say two to three pounds of grapes, right? So in between those two meals, you can get around six to eight pounds of fruit. And then in that smoothie bowl that I mentioned, let's say you do a blueberry coconut yogurt bowl or a strawberry coconut yogurt bowl with sliced banana on top or something like that. That would be like another pound, pound and a half of fruit in that also with the coconut yogurt. And then you can put like hemp seeds and things like that in there, which, by the way, it's a very good idea to rotate between flax seeds, chia seeds and hemp seeds because of the omega-3 essential fatty acid content, which is really important source of EPA for your brain chemistry and your brain, your body converts EPA into DHA in order to create a certain balance, right? Fully grown adults don't really need as much DHA because you've gotten most of it when you were a child or a baby, right? So, you know, somebody used to say, oh, what about DHA? You should have got that when you were breastfed as a child, right? Oh, uh, you don't need to build a whole nother brain, <laughs> right. Well, everything you currently have, I said, is already built. You just need to maintain what you currently have and build a little yeah. bit on top. Right. So the, the need for protein and DHA and your diet and all that is wildly over exaggerated. And it's mostly done uh, as an economic driver for, for animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Right. If you talk about, you know, it takes a lot more materials to build a house than it does to maintain one. You wouldn't have the same amount of materials in both conditions. It doesn't make sense. It's just mathematically not plausible. So let's say in your in that smoothie bowl that I talked about, you can do three to four tablespoons of like, let's say hemp seeds, like a quarter cup of hemp seeds, right? Or two tablespoons of flax seeds or two tablespoons of chia seeds. It's a rich source of protein, good source of omega-3 essential fatty acids, right? Good source of vitamin E, things of this nature, right? Uh, let's say in that smoothie bowl, you would take four Brazil nuts, incredible source of selenium, which is selenium is very important for hormonal balance, thyroid health, all this kind of stuff, right? So you take four of those, you put it in the smoothie bowl, right? And so basically you throw everything in the blender, coconut yogurts, the fruits, things like that. And you blend it up to, and you puree it till you get like a smooth texture, um, put it in the fridge overnight, boom, right? You can even add like a quarter cup or a half a cup of rolled oats to that, blend that up and leave it in the fridge overnight, right? And you get a little fermentation process and that improves the digestibility in your gut. So if you got gut health issues, that's something that you would definitely want to do. That's a good idea. Frozen fruits, you can take a pound, let's say of frozen strawberries and throw that in there or a half a pound of, bl- of frozen blueberries. Um, and the reason why I say that is because a half a pound of blueberries is equivalent in the nutrient profile to a whole pound of strawberries. All right. Um, strawberries are an incredible amount, uh, is a credible source of insoluble fiber, vitamin C, antioxidants, really amazing food, blueberries, same thing. Right. So that's really good to, as a de-stressor, this would literally reduce cortisol levels, which would then help to bring down estrogen, which then in turn would raise testosterone because estrogen and testosterone is a zero sum game between the two. So the decline of one causes an increase in the other. Right. So it's like the seesaw effect. Right. Because the hormones are, hormones are all about balance. So even though raw numbers play a role, but the raw numbers are kind of secondary to the overall balance, the raw numbers will sort themselves out if the balance between your hormones are sorted out, right? Mm -hmm. So 
for a final, like, let's say cooked meal, that's when you can have things like uh, sweet potato or red lentils, black beans, red kidney beans, cabbage, uh, diced onion, bell pepper, uh, diced cucumber, avocado. I think that, you know, if you're dealing with testosterone issues, it's a very good idea to like, let's say you have a quarter cup of pumpkin seed kernels and an avocado in that last meal. Great source of zinc, vitamin E, omega-3, omega-6, really important for that right? Uh, HDL cholesterol synthesis, right? So LDL and HDL is a zero-sum game between that. So if you have this disproportionately high LDL, which a lot of men who are struggling with testosterone uh, issues particularly do, because high LDL is an indication of chronic oxidative stress. So your body starts producing more LDL because uh, that LDL is meant to be a hedge against the oxidative stress because as those cells are breaking down, you're going to need more cholesterol to build mm -hmm. new cells. I know I'm saying a lot, so if you want to interrupt yeah, no, me, no, no, no. <laughs> it's fine. Go ahead. It's cool. Okay. Because uh, I, I know I'm saying a lot. You know, it's a lot of information, but you know, talking about the solution, it can get yeah, quite yeah. detailed, right? Um. Then also, if you have, let's say, testosterone issues as a result of uh, gut health issues, right? Maybe you've got some type of leaky gut issues going on. It would be a good idea to, like, let's say, in, in that, with that final meal, you have, let's say, a cup of sauerkraut or kimchi, right? a good probiotic-rich food. If you're going to get the sauerkraut, so if you're going to get pickles, you're going to get kimchi, get it from the refrigerated aisle. Right. Uh, if you're not it, because the ones that are at room temperature, those don't have live cultures in them. Right. So you want to get the live probiotic cultures where well, you'll get that from the refrigerated aisle. So you can have eight ounces of that, of that sauerkraut or that kimchi or whatever with that last meal. The coconut yogurt is also a probiotic rich food. Um, and then your cabbage, your kale, spinach, bell pepper, Jerusalem artichoke, things like this are good sources of prebiotic fiber, which feeds your gut microbiome. Um, if you've got, let's say, candida overgrowth, you've got small, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth issues, you probably want to have more basil or oregano or garlic in your diet. You're going to have more ginger, more turmeric in your diet. So the way that you season your food becomes really important. So curry, turmeric, cumin, garlic, right? White pepper, black pepper, cayenne pepper. These are things that uh, bolster your immune system and regulate pathogens in your body, right? So these are antifungal, antibacterial, antiviral, right? Uh, so that's like, th that's a solution. Now, as far as training is concerned, if you want to build more muscle mass, everything's about time efficiency. You want to get it while the getting's good, Right. So it would be better to train really intensely in a very short period of time. We're talking 20 to 30 minutes, two to three times a week. Yeah. Right. And what, what form of training would you recommend or advocate? Like um, if we say like weight training or calisthenics or resistance bands, do you have a preference or do you say whatever people enjoy? Uh, all of the yeah. above. I'm more partial towards body weight and resistance bands, but all of the above. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm my primary three modalities for training is barbell resistance bands and body weight. Mm -hmm. So the main, so the main premise is you're at least stimulating your muscles with some form of resistance. Yeah. 
and, and for you mm-hmm. personally like i'm quite interested in like what's like your current routine or split like and yeah so your kind of training philosophy and what you eat to kind of fuel your workouts because a lot of people might be fascinated they might so l- l- let me start off let me let me backpedal a little bit what do you currently uh weigh yeah what's your height and weight just so people have a bit of context um so right now i'm eating four days a week on on a fed day i'm 158 pounds i'm five foot nine yeah right um I look the way that I look predominantly because of the way that I train. So the barbell lifts are the staples. That's how I measure uh, my overall mechanical strength. Um, and then I build every my training around that with resistance bands and body weight. So I'm doing a push-pull leg split. I train Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Those are my eating days. And then Sunday is my eating and rest day. The only two days I eat back-to-back are... Um, Sundays and Mondays. And then the and then I do a 36-hour fast Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. I'm doing this for a fairly short period of time. Um, I do this once a year for 12 to 16 weeks. Right? So at my heaviest at 14% body fat, I'm around 175 pounds. I'll cut down to 150 pounds and 6% body fat. Wow. And so my goal now is to get to that 6% body fat and then just maintain that. Right. Uh, And this is a fairly new thing I'm going for. I haven't really put much effort into getting lean or anything like that. Me getting like particularly lean is incidental. It's not really done on purpose. It's not a goal, right? Essentially. Um, I don't have a very good grasp on portion control. I don't really, I don't do the calorie cutting thing. I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. Right. I have no interest in trying to diet down or anything like that. I'm not remotely interested in doing that. That will kill the joy in my life. Um, I like eating very large portions at a time. So, for example, each meal for me can be about four or five pounds of, f- of food, right? Which is the reason why on a fasted day, like today, I could weigh 154 pounds. And then by the end of the day of a full day of eating, I can weigh like 158, 160 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm kind of like eating for two days yeah, yeah. and then, you know, fasting the next day. Uh, so yeah, that's for me personally. Yeah, and you get enjoyment out of that because you know yourself how you you love like a, a large quantity of food. I think I'm quite similar. I think if you come from like a athlete back, like an athletic background or a trait, like you train hard, you you like to eat large quantities. I've found. But yeah, sorry, carry, carry right, on. Right, right. Now strength standards. Strength standards are very important. I'm big on that. So for example, one of my strength standards is. If I'm going to use a barbell, I'm going to train my barbell overhead press. I want to be able to press my body weight over my head. Right? I have to be able to press my body weight. I can't go below that. If I'm not able to press my body weight, I'm in a weak state, which means I got a lot of strength training to do. So if I'm 175 pounds, I can I, I can press 175 pounds over my, over my weight and lock out the elbows wow. over my head. Right? Of course, being at 154 pounds, I can still do the same thing because my strength uh, levels don't decline even when I lose weight. They just stay where they are because the muscle mass is the same. The only thing I'm cutting is the body yeah. fat. 
which is another reason why I don't like doing calorie deficits. Right? All the scientific literature demonstrates that uh, fasting is more effective at cutting body fat and retaining muscle mass than just do, than just cutting calories. Right. Um, so that's a that's a that's a check mark in the corner in in the column for me. Right. Because that's what I prefer to yeah. do. Right. Um, deadlift. It's a big one for me as well, right? You should be able to buy, you should be able to deadlift at least ha- at least twice your body weight. So if you're 150 pounds, you should be able to at least deadlift 300 pounds at least. Um, back squat. Uh, let's say if you do a barbell back squat, right? Um, you should be able to deadlift 150 percent of your body weight. You should be able to back squat 150% of your body weight. So your body weight plus 50%. Right? Uh, Bench press. Bench press, your bench press weight should be similar to back squat. Right? Um, But probably a little bit behind. It depends on the person. Right? It depends on what what your leverage is and whatnot are. Right. So, like, if you have short arms, you'd be really good at bench pressing. Yeah. If you got really long arms, probably yeah, not so range much. Range of motion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, for me, my bench press is not particularly strong. It's a little bit below um, my back squat, but that's because I'm lower body dominant. Yeah. Right. So, I prioritize having strong hips. So, deadlifting and back squatting. And as far as upper body strength, I more so prioritize overhead pressing strength and rowing strength. So barbell rows. You should be able to row at least just as much as you bench, if not more. Right? So if you're bench if you're bench pressing 225 for 10 reps, you should be able to row 225 at least for 10 reps. If your row is below your bench, your back is weak. Right. So you should train to be dominant in overhead pressing and barbell rowing. Your chest is a fairly small muscle group. And it's not a great indication of overall body strength because you're lying on your back. So your true raw strength can only be measured when you're on your feet. Because anatomically, the power output of a human being largely comes from your feet and your connection with the ground. If you're lying on your back, it doesn't really count as, as like raw strength. It's only strong in that position, right? Same thing with like a leg press. You can have strong legs on a leg press, but if you can't squat with that weight, well, you're not really strong. It's just that your legs are strong, but your torso is weak, right? So it's that kind of thing. So that's how I measure strength. So if you're a man trying to gain strength, uh, gain muscle mass, it's good to have these strength goals. So you pursue these particular numbers in proportion to your weight. Now, depending on how, how heavy you are, that would, that would change your goal. So for example, if you are a man and you're, let's say, uh, 260 pounds, but you're 40% body fat, well, your strength standards wouldn't be according to your overall weight because because almost half of your body weight is yeah. fat, right? So your strength standards should have to be measured according to what your lean mass is. So what you would do is you would actually subtract that 40% from your total number, and that's what you would base your strength standards on. Oh, okay, that makes sense. 
Yeah. Right. If you're a natural lifter, recovery is going to be a lot slower. And if you have a metabolic disorder, that's going to make your recovery even slower than that. So this is going to diminish your ability to train frequently. So if you're chronically inflamed and you're training very frequently, chances are you're not recovering at you're not recovering adequately. This is another reason why most men do not are not able to build strength and size to any significant degree. Most men they're in the gym, you see them every day in there, and they they never change. They're nowhere near their their genetic potential, but they look the same all year round. And that's because they're not recovering. They're recovering just enough to continue doing what they're doing, but they're not improving as far as performance. Right? Within a year, uh, a man has the ability to, to put on two pounds of muscle every month in their first year of training. With lifestyle, depending on how old you are, I would say a good goal is anywhere from one pound a month to, to one and a half pounds a month. So you're looking at a, a raw muscle mass increase of 12 to 16 pounds a year. You do that two pound, you do that two years back to back, you can gain a full, you know, 24, yep. 28 pounds, maybe even breach 30 yep. pounds Which of muscle mass. And 30 pounds lovely, of muscle mass yeah. is a lot. Right. Um, so you have to play the long game when it comes to your goals. Uh, building that muscle mass is more important than dropping the body fat. And truth be told, dropping the body fat is, is a side effect of reversing your metabolic disorder. It's not really a goal. It's a side effect. The goal should be to improve your hormonal balance, your mitochondrial and your uh, function and recovery, and reduce that oxidative stress. You'll lose the body fat by def as a result. Right? But just pursuing weight loss as a goal isn't really necessarily a worthy goal because at that point, you're just pursuing just deflating, essentially letting the air out of a tire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. So you're, from what I've, what I've gathered, so your number one, like the first step anyone can take is eat their way out of it. So like you would, like you said, you wouldn't recommend training initially because like you say it's quite taxing on the body and if you're not able to fuel the body like you say you're stealing its resources so we've said like a high raw diet is what you'd advocate um I, you touched on earlier would you ever advocate a fully raw diet is that something you've experimented with yeah i write fully raw diet plans yeah. oh yeah i do that a lot for truck drivers ah, okay uh, because, you know, if you don't have access to a kitchen and all that kind yeah. of stuff, well, you, you kind of just, the best thing to do is just eat raw, right? You can just pack a bunch of raw food in your truck and just go. Mm -hmm. You can just be on the road, on the road and just have mostly your diet. It's just straight up fruits, nuts, and seeds and like some greens. Yeah. And in terms of fully raw versus, yeah, so like fully raw versus like high raw, have you noticed any, have you, have you personally experimented it, uh, with it yourself? Yeah, and have you noticed any differences in how you feel in terms of on the fully raw versus like high raw? Have you noticed any benefits or negatives or yeah? Um yeah, so I think uh 20 2021 and I think half of 2022 
I was fully raw for the most part. And I probably only ate like a cook. I ate one cooked meal probably two or three times a week or six times a month sometimes. Um, I don't even till this day, when I say high raw vegan, it's, it's not even like you're eating cooked meat food every day. I don't eat a whole lot of cooked yeah. food. I really don't. Most of my food is overwhelmingly raw. Um, the reason why I don't call myself a fully raw vegan is because sometimes I have sworn off cooked food. I just mostly eat raw as it is. So eating, I don't know how much of a difference the cooked meals make in how I feel. It's more of like a schedule thing. So if I'm really busy, I got calls back to back, I'm live streaming, you know, whatever, I'm traveling, I'm probably just going to be eating just raw because I don't have the time to meal prep. Um, I do feel really good eating more raw. The more raw I eat, the better I feel. Right. Um, and I typically end up being leaner eating more raw. So the more raw I eat, it's easier for me to get lean and stay lean. Right. And I'm able to eat more food. Mm. So if I do eat a fully raw diet, I also eat probably maybe 3,600 calories a day sometimes, maybe more than that, 38. It'd be pretty high. So we're talking 16 pounds of fruit a day, and the serving size looks ridiculous. And people see me eat, they're like, there's no way you're eating like that every day. And I'm like, oh, yeah. No. Yeah. You know, so um, it could be four or five pounds of melon at a time. And then, you know, the next meal after that would be six to eight bananas, just straight, just a bundle of bananas, just eating, just eating banana one after the other, right? And then the next one after that can be like three pounds of grapes. That's just like three meals. Um, and then have a, let's say a cup of almonds, a cup of cashews, and then like a whole Haas avocado, right? And just eating like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so let's say, you know, if you eat like, um, four or five, let's say you eat five pounds of watermelon, which for me is kind of like that. That's around like 500 something calories. If you eat three pounds of grapes, that's another uh, five, 600 calories. So just between those two meals, that's already over a thousand calories. The bananas, let's say if you eat eight bananas, that's like around 800 something calories. So now that's around like 1800 calories and just carbs and fruit alone. One cup of nuts is in between six and 700 calories. Um, if you eat two cups of nuts a day, that's around 1400 calories. So that right there is over like, you know, roughly around 3000, a little over 3000. And then the Haas avocado is around 227, 230 calories, somewhere around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So if you add all of that up, this is kind of like, yeah, yeah. But obviously you're an active guy and, like you said, the training is what's also shaped your body. Obviously, the nutrition is is a fuel, but you have to train a certain way to achieve a certain look, don't you, and performance. I think a lot of people try and rush right, it. Right. Like you were saying earlier with the lean muscle gain, if you aim to gain like, what was it, 12 to 16 pounds a year or 30, yeah, around that number, then that's sustainable. And obviously, that's still really impressive. Because I think when we, when we seek like instant gratification in life it just always seems to come at a cost doesn't it like you were talking about with the carnival the keto the steroids the cocaine like as examples but it, it's true it's true <laughs> yeah so i would just because i've had some guests who are like fully raw and they're, they're not a big fan of like high fat or or even high protein really which is also it seems like you advocate but in terms of like macros 
what what do you advocate in terms of like macros roughly have you and also have you heard of like the 80 10 10 diet i assume by doug graham yeah i've, I've heard of 80 10 10 i mean probably typically the guidelines that i advocate for dietary fat is typically no lower than 15 percent. i don't really go any lower than that um you can do you could eat really low fat i don't think you should eat like that in per per perpetuity because you run into issues right um a lot of people run into hair loss um chipping nails dry skin um they run into issues like this right uh because when you cut your fat you're not just cutting dietary fat you're cutting your omega-3s you're cutting your omega-6s you're cutting your zinc you're cutting your selenium right this is a few things you're cutting so if you're going to cut your fat that low you really have to make up for it with a surplus of the carbohydrate rich foods that have those things so like if I eat a high raw diet and the dietary fats are going to be significantly low, like around 15%, that's because, you know, you're having more legumes in your diet instead of the nuts and seeds, right? So for example, I may take out the almonds, the walnuts, the cashews and things like that. And I may have more of the black beans, the lentils, the split peas, and then just leave in the seeds, the pumpkin seed kernels, uh, sunflower seed kernels, which are really important sources of vitamin E, magnesium, manganese. Uh, the hemp, which is an important source of like protein, omega-3s, you know, this kind of thing, right? But you're all dietary fats. Um, I don't use, I don't use nut butters, really. I don't use uh, cooking oil, right? I don't use oil. I definitely don't cook with oil. Uh, so things like that. So my fats would be low by default. So my fat sources are really the nuts and seeds, the avocado and things like coconut yogurt. So my diet isn't really particularly a high fat diet. Yeah. My carbohydrate intake is typically, or what I advise is typically the carbohydrate intake is going to be somewhere around uh, 60, 65%. The lowest I would go is probably 55%. Mm -hmm. Now it does vary depending on what the goal of the plan is, right? So your, your plan may look a bit different if you're diabetic, or it may look a bit different if you're battling cancer. Right. So it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. Your diet would look very different if you're training for a bodybuilding competition. Yeah, for sure. Right. And what would you say, like the the overwhelming majority, what would you say their kind of goals are? Is it chronic disease reversal or what for your clients personally? Like, what do you experience? Well, what people tell me their goal is, is people want to feel better, right? Now, people want to reverse chronic, chronic illness, but chronic illness essentially is just you have a metabolic disorder, right? So, but generally people want to feel better. They want to sleep better. Um, they want to have better joint quality. You know, people have a lot of back pain, knees, hips, neck pain, headaches, lethargia, right? Really poor sleep quality, mental health issues, uh, excessive body fat gain, difficult to lose body fat and they feel sluggish. So people just want to feel better and they want to look better. So technically, you know, it's metabolic illness reversal, but really you just, you want to feel your best and you want to move your best. Uh, and so that's what I gear, you know, my stuff around giving people food freedom, right? Movement freedom um, and doing things in a way that is as simple and convenient as possible. Yeah. Based on, yeah, I guess because everyone, like you say, is so different with goals and lifestyle factors and things like that. And especially like 
how do you find do you find people have a lot of questions about like social situations like how do they eat out with friends or family or yeah how how do you kind of tackle that issue or or challenge let's call it so i have more of an ideological predisposition so for example in your social situations the leadership of that social situation is very important to establish leader the leadership position should be held by the person who is the most disciplined so that's where i start from so if we're going out to eat who's picking where to go out to eat the person with the worst diet or the one with the best yeah it should be the one with the best shouldn't it right exactly so you should be the one who's picking where we eat that's what i do if people Let's say, hey, hey, Remsen, let's go out and hang out. What, what do you want to do? I'm picking where we're going. I just do this by default. And that, you know, I would do this. Kind of, I didn't realize I was doing this when I first started doing it. And until I really analyzed my behavior. And I'm like, every time I'm with a group of people, I'm the one always choosing where we go. And people just, they just agree to it. Right? I don't know what that's about. I don't know if that's normal for everybody, but that's what I do. So if everybody else eats like crap, Either you're going to pick where we eat or you're like, we're not going out to eat. We're doing something else. We're going to shoot pool. We're going bowling. We're going hiking. We're going to a gun range. We're going hatchet throwing. Uh, we're doing rock climbing. We're going to the gym to train. We're doing something more active, something more stimulating. But we're not going to just sit down and stuff our face with oily, greasy, GMO-filled foods. Right? Getting our pesticide on. We're not doing that. We're not going <laughs> to sit here and live hand to mouth and, and, and pay like 200% inflation rate to, to eat something that we don't got no business eating in the first yeah, place. True. <laughs> right. So that's usually how I frame it. Like in, in your social situations, you have to lead in your social situations. Mm. Right. If you can't do that, you probably shouldn't be in those social situations. If your social situations are going to override and be to the detriment of your goals, well, then you shouldn't be engaging in those social situations. Right? Because it's a zero-sum game between you getting closer to your goals and your social situations pulling you further away from your goals. And you have to choose. That's just the truth. You can't really have both. Right? Sometimes two things are in direct competition with each other. Last time somebody invited me to a steakhouse, I went there with, with my own food. I literally had, you know, like a glass bowl with like just the all plant-based food sitting in the middle of a steakhouse. I'm like, you invited me here. This is what I'm doing. But just don't ever invite me to a steakhouse again. Yeah. Right. I give you a pass because you didn't know. Like, oh, he's plant-based. That's right. Ah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm packing my own food. If they don't let me eat this here, though, I'm leaving. It's not because I'm an asshole, but like, look, the reason why you're friends with me is because of how disciplined and principled I am. You know how rigid I am. So you know what to expect. Yeah, right? that's true. You don't like it all the time, but it's the thing that you value because that's why you trust me. Yeah. <laughs> right? So we have to factor these things into our social situations, right? And this is probably like a whole nother conversation about like self-development and things like that. Right, because you do have to have like an ideological predisposition with by how you engage with people and you know and the world around you, as opposed to just what you eat and how you train in the gym. Definitely, definitely. 
I resonate with that a lot because I'm quite disciplined like myself even when I was younger and I went vegan like five years ago maybe in like high school it for a lot of people it was like weird they're like oh you're eating bird food or you're eating things like that and they used to joke and I just laughed it off and I was still friends with them it doesn't matter what we eat if we eat differently but yeah like you say the discipline and, and the standards you have and the decisions you make that's what's led you to be the person you are now that the man you are now and and yeah, like you said, that's why they like you. So yeah, just, just staying true to yourself and sticking by your guns and not conforming to other people's kind of expectations. Like you say, that that resonates a lot. And just making the best choices you can. So I'm getting mindful of the time. Um, so if you'd like, we can end with some rapid fire questions. I've got prepared here. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So the idea is to um, answer them as quickly as possible, but feel free to elaborate more if you want to. Like, if you feel like there's a pertinent point, then feel free to elaborate more. Cool. So question number one, describe yourself in one word. Deliberate. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) What is one book that everyone should read before they die? The Bible. (laughs) Are you personally religious or do you just think there's a lot of good no i'm not religious you think at there's all, a lot no. of good messages and i guess yeah yeah what can you elaborate it gives you a lot of very important insight into humanity mm. yeah i agree there's you don't need you don't need to take any of it literally yeah. it's all figurative mm-hmm. but it gives you a lot of important insights into humanity for sure what's your greatest strength and biggest weakness Uh, my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. Yeah. So two set, two separate. I don't know if they're two separate things. I would probably say the first thing that comes to mind for me right now is tunnel vision. Okay. I'm very, very laser focused in one direction most of the time. Mm -hmm. So that can cause me to miss a lot of other things. So I, I have, I'm at any given point in time. I'm on two ends of of an extreme. Either I have a very hard time focusing or I'm laser, laser focused. But I'm very seldomly in between. Yeah. (laughs) So I would probably say that I'm an extremist. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Do you believe in having a purpose? If so, what is your purpose in life? Um, I think it is very dangerous to not have a purpose. So you do need to have a purpose. You should by default. Every Everything in existence and every living being in existence has a purpose. Uh, you are responsible for knowing what that is and performing and pursuing that purpose um, in the most uh, ethical and efficient way possible. Mm. And what, so what's your purpose or yeah, what are you currently working on? Service. Mm. Just any... Anyone, everyone, just. Yeah, just, yeah, service to my environment. So, for example, uh, picking a lane and I chose uh, self-improvement, you know, health and, and that kind of thing, right? Improving yourself as a person um, all the way down to a cellular level, right? And so educating in that kind of way and coaching and mentoring in that way, that's the vein of service that I've chosen. Excellent. <laughs> 
if you were in prison and you had one phone call to make, who would you call? So you just imagine you're in a jail, a prison cell in, let's say, Mexico or something, and there's one one individual you can call to get you out. Who who would that be? Person to call yeah, to like get you, me you've out. You've got one guy or girl to rely on. Like, who are you trusting with that call? To get me out. That's a very interesting question because it's very circumstantial. Yeah. It depends on what you did. And it depends on who you access to, who you have access to. For you personally, like, who would you trust? I don't even know if I can name that person to be quiet. That's because y'all might know who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I can name that person. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's very circumstantial. If I had to choose to get me out, it depends. Who, yeah, that's who can pull question, the strings? It, it, the, it, this, it's very circumstantial who can pull the strings. Because it, it could either be a journalist or it can be a family member. So I would probably, you know, or it could be my lady, to be honest. It could be my girlfriend. So I'd probably call yeah. her. Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. <laughs> you got to be in the yeah, good yeah. books. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. finally, imagine you're speaking to someone who feels like their life's at the lowest point. So let's say like, I don't know, an 18 year old guy with no, no purpose, no direction in life, just feels like life is meaningless, like they're nihilistic. What what advice would you give them? If you could tell them anything, any message, what, what would you say to them? I've been there, right? In, in that kind of black-pilled space. Yeah. So, for the most part, every choice you make is fairly arbitrary. But you got to pick a thing. If you're not going to pick a thing, it's like this piss or get off the pot kind of thing, right? As a person who came from that place, the only way that I made it out was picking a thing and then pursuing that thing in a very deliberate and consistent way. And that's the only way out. Um, life is an opportunity that you don't know if you'll ever get again. Now, you keep trying at the thing. Find the thing. What is a thing that you think is worth it? There has to be a thing. If you say that there's no thing that's worth living, more than likely you haven't been paying attention, right? Um, so, it, And it also depends on the age of that person, right? So, for example, if you if you are 70 years old and you're in that black pill space, I wouldn't tell you that because obviously you've been through more than I have, number one. And also, all of your, all of your best years, for the most part, are more than likely behind you. But if, let's say, you're in your 20s, you can't stay in that black pill space. You haven't lived long enough. You haven't earned that. You, don't, you can't say for sure that that's even the case. What if you're wrong? Right? So the whole, so I start with, what if you're wrong? So for me, being in that black pill space, if I would have decided nothing is worth it, and I would have checked out, self-deleted, there would all the people who I've helped today. They would have. Ne they they probably would have never received the help. 
I would have been doing all those people a disservice. I would have been throwing all those people under the bus and all the people in the future who I haven't met and helped yet. All of them under the bus. I would have never made any of the videos that I put out. I would have never done any of those live streams. I would have never written any of those plans. For all the people who I've pulled from the brink in my life through my mentorship and coaching and just even being friends with people, right? Um, and I've helped plenty of people who are like, look, I don't have any money. I'm in a really bad situation. I can't afford coaching. And I'm like, let's get on a call. Right? But if I would have wrote myself off, that would have come at their expense. Now, I didn't know who they were at the time, and I didn't know that I would be doing what I'm doing now at the time. I didn't know. The question is, the way that you feel now, you're in that black-pilled space, what if you're wrong? It's not just you who's on the line. It's everyone else. So there's a lot of other people who could be collateral damage because of you giving up on yourself. Your life is not just about you. So like a big part of spirituality is the integration of every person and their connection to another person. We don't live in a vacuum. We don't. It's only through the lens of the ego that we think we live in isolation, but we don't. We, we may perceive life like that, but we don't. Right? Mm -hmm. When you open your mouth and someone else hears those words, you're connected to that person. Right? When you go to the store, you buy food for yourself. You're putting food on the table for somebody else. Right? So even like doing this podcast right now. You didn't know me. I didn't know you. And I did what I usually do in a vacuum. Doesn't really matter who's listening or not. I put that content out anyway. And you heard it. You took an interest in it. You reached out. And now we're doing this. We're connected now. Right? We're, we're, we, we've always been in it together. We just didn't know each other. Now we know each other. Right? So now that connection is official. Other people are now going to hear that because you facilitated the ability for other people to hear a very important message that's going to change their life. You're pulling people off the ledge that you will never meet in your life. You didn't even know. That's how connected we are. You will never know just how connected you are to everyone around you. You'll never know. Mm. And that's humbling. So you can't definitively say, oh, I'm black pill and none of it matters. You don't know enough to say that. But you have the opportunity to do your best and that's worth it. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful message. And I appreciate the compliment and I appreciate you coming on. And I think if anyone's in that space, I think that message should resonate with them and, and hopefully pull it out pull them out of that that dark hole because like you say we're so connected just because you don't see the lives you're touching it doesn't mean you're not having that impact and yeah amazing so um you've answered all my questions we had a great chat it's been great so uh where can the people find you it's time to uh plug yourself <laughs> yeah so basically um all of my stuff is at tribe by noir so uh tribe t-r-i-b-e by B-Y Noir N-O-I-R-E. So trybynoir.com, trybynoir.tv, at trybynoir on uh, YouTube, Instagram, uh, TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> right? You can type it into Google uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Beautiful. Perfect. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Peace and love.